0: And welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. We have a very special episode for you today. I have in the studio with me, Virginia Allen. So good to be here, Lauren. And my friend and prodigal co-host, Kelsey Bowler. I'm so happy to be back, Lauren and Virginia,
1: and even more excited to debate Taylor Swift with both of you today. Oh, man. Yes, we're going to have so much
2: fun with that today. We'll be covering everything from Taylor Swift to some interesting new emojis coming out this year and a story about a straight woman who is repelled by straight men. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, an exciting interview with a pro-life activist
0: and our Problematic Woman of the Week. Okay, so let's get started where we left off last week. I'm going to try to go through this quickly, but... It is Taylor Swift's new documentary, Miss Americana, which came out last Friday. The documentary starts with Taylor Swift in a pair of denim overalls, playing with her cat, talking about growing up in the spotlight and trying to fit this mold of being a good Southern girl, you know, being as likable as she could be. A lot of aspects of the documentary were predictable, similar to other celebrity documentaries aimed at humanizing these icons, their self-doubt, their relationships, making them out to be regular Joes, just like you and me. It (laughs) continues telling her story from a small town girl to a mega pop star, but there was an interesting twist to Swift's documentary. I don't know how you just said that. (laughs) Well done. As she focused on something I think we've all been curious about, and this is her transition to political activism. It started in the 2018 midterm elections when Swift endorsed Democratic candidates from Tennessee, despite some around her telling her not to. In the documentary, she says she regrets not speaking out against Trump during the 2016 election and had to use her voice this time around. Since the election, Swift has been outspoken about LGBTQ rights, as seen in her controversial song, You Need to Calm down, aimed at criticizing those who support the traditional definition of marriage as, you know, country hillbillies. Swift also discusses her opposition towards Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, referring to her as, quote, Trump in a wig. Swift's main criticism against Blackburn was for her vote against reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act and being opposed to same-sex marriage. So I'm very honest on this show all the time. I am not a Taylor Swift fan. But Virginia and Kelsey, you are. So why don't we start with the positives of this documentary? Mm, are there any?
2: <laughs> I have some positives. No, course Of course
0: Virginia does. Okay. I'll
1: say the positives were the first half of the documentary. It was this very inspirational portrayal of how she grew up from this very innocent, young country singer into this beautiful young lady who is now a a pop music icon. You saw a lot of these behind-the-scenes, candid moments, raw video clips that I, as a huge Taylor Swift fan, had never seen before. So I appreciated that behind-the-scenes look into her life. Yeah, then the whole second half of the documentary, it felt like two very different documentaries. It just took this sharp pivot into politics and all went downhill from there.
2: Yeah, I, I almost felt like it could have been two completely different films. Yeah. And you kind of it was almost like you had whiplash going into the second half. Because I, I love the first half and I was like, This this is nothing like the trailer that I saw. I was expecting it to really be political throughout. But the first half was. It was super relatable. She was telling her story. She was talking about challenges that she's gone through, challenges that many of us work through of trying to find acceptance from other people and what happens when we feel that rejection and going into depression and uh, really uh, common struggles that many, many women and many people face. But then it was like a, a switch was flipped for the second half and the whole tone of the film changed. Well, and I want to start with the
0: first half, because I think what annoys me about Taylor Swift so much is that exactly like you said, Virginia, is she has these everyday common struggles of like, She wants people to like her, but then she has this like woe is me attitude and I'm a victim. But like, no, you're not. You're the same as every other person. But the difference is you get to go home to your hundreds of millions of dollars every night.
1: Yeah, but everybody gets down on themselves at times. You can have all the money, all the fame and still feel like you're not. Accepted that you know you're you're receiving in her case negative media attention. In in the case of you know other 15 year old girls at home, it's maybe they're not getting enough likes on their Instagram pictures. Everybody deals with that feeling of not feeling included and 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 um, accepted. And you know I I think it is very real. And I think this is what has made Taylor Swift so famous: her willingness to be open and candid about. Her feelings in that regard, it's why so many of us really feel like we know her on a personal level, because when she sings her lyrics, we connect with them we have experienced those experiences too
2: and she talks about kelsey going off your point she's talked about a lot that in her music it's essentially just her opening up her journal and kind of telling her story and usually that's been around relationships but you feel like through the documentary she did that with her whole life of like this is my journey what i've had to walk through with you know struggling to be good and struggling to be accepted and i i forget exactly how she phrased it but i really liked what she said that you know as as a young person as she was growing in her popularity and you know playing more and more big stadiums she was struggling with this idea of do i really have a right to be here like am i good enough and i think that's something that for all of us at some point we kind of step back and it's like okay how, how you know in my career or or whatever how did i really get this like do i deserve this did i actually really earn this And it's just a very it's a very human thought to have.
1: I probably have that thought every time I go on TV. So I absolutely relate to that. I understand what you're saying, Lauren, that um, she shouldn't play victim in that regard. But I think there's a difference between playing victim and being honest about these feelings that so many of us experience.
0: Well, let's move on to a part of the documentary that we can agree on. And that is kind of the weird (laughs) political turn that it took. Where she really goes after, bizarrely in a way, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. Virginia, what did you think?
2: I was really frustrated by this, mainly because if you're going to speak out on an issue and if you're going to get political, you have to be informed. And no one expects Taylor Swift to be a policy expert. But if you're going to speak out on policy, you need to understand what you're talking about. And Taylor Swift really oversimplifies policy issues. We saw this at the VMAs where Taylor Swift said from stage about the Equality Act, she said, quote, which basically just says we all deserve equal rights under the law. Well, her main complaint against Marsha Blackburn was that she voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act which she said basically just protects women from domestic abuse and stalking. So very similar quotes where she's kind of saying it basically just does dot, 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 this thing that sounds really nice, uh, a major oversimplification of actually – policy issues that have far-reaching and dangerous effects. The Equality Act could ultimately lead to the end of, of women's sports, would allow biological males in women's locker rooms and bathrooms. Many of the issues with the, the Violence Against Women Act, many of the issues with the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act uh, are similar and that they could require battered women's shelters to accept biological males who identify as women into their facilities and also puts a lot of, of resources, finances and power in the hands of the federal government that really belongs to the states. So Taylor does a disservice to all of her fans who follow her and look up to her by only kind of giving them these little half truths about these policy issues. Right. I wrote an entire piece on this
1: over at the Daily Signal. I- Encourage you all to check it out and especially share it with young Swifties. But I, I think it's important to point out that as conservatives, we shouldn't be criticizing Taylor Swift for wanting to engage in policy conversation. I think this is something conservatives need to encourage all young girls to do: like be a part of this conversation, engage in debate. The problem that I have with Taylor Swift, which um, you, you, Virginia you started explaining is that she is not engaging from a place of good faith she is demonizing those who she disagrees with in the documentary she actually calls them uh, racist and uh, homophobes and fascists she calls them fascists and for someone who has built her entire career on the magic of her songwriting pen, for her to stoop to language that low is just so far beneath her, in my opinion. I have have such great respect for her, and, and I think she is so much better than that. And, you know, if she wants to engage in conversations about these complicated policy issues, which as Virginia just pointed out, they are very complicated. She needs to be willing to have conversations about them, debate them. Um, instead, what she does is is she posts, you know, little, little political posts on her Instagram, and then and then blocks anyone from commenting on it. So we can't, as conservatives. Engage in a conversation with her about why we stand against this. And guess what? It's not because we're racist or we're homophobic or because we're fascist. It's because there are serious consequences that could come from some of, uh, of the types of legislation that she supports. So she says in the documentary that, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for her because she says part of the fabric of being a country artist is you don't force your beliefs on other people. You let people live their lives. That is grilled into us. I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of young women are raised up with, you know, being told that type of message. Oh, don't force your politics on other people. Let them believe what they want. I think she misunderstood this message. There's a big difference between forcing your politics on people and engaging with people about your politics, about your beliefs. Taylor Swift, as any any American, has every right to engage and you know, I might disagree with her, but if she takes the time to educate herself, I would love to engage in a debate with her. Instead, she just spreads these half-truths about different policies and then blocks off any conversation.
0: So, yeah, Kelsey, you're, you're so right. And there's another quote of Taylor's that I want to read from the documentary, and it's talking about those who are, quote, anti-LGBTQ rights. She says, someone is literally coming for their neck. Like, These anti lgbtq rights, like they're literally coming to hurt them in some way. I don't think that's true at all. But Marsha Blackburn, she did take the high road with her response. She released a statement that said, quote, Taylor is an exceptionally gifted artist and songwriter and Nashville is fortunate to be. At the center of her creative universe. While there are policy issues on which we may always disagree, we do agree on the need to throw the entertainment community's collective influence behind legislation protecting songwriters, musicians, and artists from censorship, copyright theft, and profiteering. The Music Modernization Act was a huge win for creators and the Bots Act for fans. Growing support behind the AM-FM Act will close those loopholes, blocking compensation for radio play. I welcome any further opportunities to work with Tennessees and the nation's creative communities to protect intellectual property and ensure appropriate compensation for their creations. On that note, I wish Taylor the best. She's earned it. So Kelsey, Class you... act. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and Kelsey, I know you had a very similar take from Marsha Blackburn on this documentary.
1: Yeah, I so appreciate marsha blackburn's response and anyone who's watched this documentary knows what a high road she took because this documentary to you know borrow one of the name of one of taylor swift's songs was mean it felt like a mean girl attack against marsha blackburn which again just felt so beneath taylor swift and not just marsha blackburn she's smearing all conservatives and she's again doing a disservice to Uh, In my opinion, to herself, because Taylor Swift has shown us that if she wants to create change in this world, she can and she does. She did this with her lawsuit where she um, sued for one dollar when she had a picture of a radio host going up her skirt and touching her inappropriately. Uh, she set a very good precedent in standing up for women then because not everybody has the money to pursue a lawsuit like that for someone who who does something that disgusting. And then she also has, as Blackburn was alluding to, she's stood up for musicians far less powerful than her and worked on legislation and worked with um, companies like Pandora and Spotify to ensure that these young and upcoming artists are being compensated for their work. And so I just think this documentary, which turned into a political hit job, just did Taylor Swift, no favors. And she's just, she's done such incredible work in her career and in in her advocacy. And it's felt like just an apology tour to me. Um, you know, like she was read all the, you know, liberal journalists who had been smacking her around for the last couple of years for not being feminist enough. And this felt like an apology tour for that. It it felt like she was coming out to say, hey, I'm with you. Stop attacking
0: me. Look, I am so woke. Don't worry about me anymore. Just get behind me. So I can't help but bring up my favorite artist who was featured in this documentary, and that was Kanye West. (laughs) Kanye West has also gone through, you know, a rebrand, reinvention of himself. But Taylor went after him for what happened at the VMAs where, you know, I'm going to give you a minute, Taylor, but Beyonce had the best album. What do you guys think? I mean, do you think that she's not giving him the chance, that she wants everyone to give her the chance?
2: I mean, I, I think her hurt from Kanye is genuine. Um, She was quite young when that happened. She didn't know how to respond. Uh, Obviously, Kanye, we have seen incredible transformation. I love Kanye now. But what he did was was very, very rude and very inappropriate and obviously very hurtful to Taylor. So, you know, she's allowed to express that and tell her story. Um, It might have been nice if she had nodded to the transformation that he has had in his life. But she's certainly allowed to express what had happened and how it hurt her.
0: You guys can't see it, but Kelsey was doing the church nod here in the studio. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, I
1: mean, I think part of my issue with this documentary, I guess this stems from my background in news and journalism, is that— She made no attempt to reach out to the other sides that she was attacking. I have all the sympathy in the world for what Taylor Swift went through with what Kanye West did to her. I completely agree it was inappropriate and he deserved all the criticism that he got for that. But he has gone through a transformation and I wonder what he would have said if if she had reached out and given him him the opportunity to uh, look back at what he did that night and issue a comment to be used in her documentary instead of just portraying him as, you know, this awful guy who did this this awful thing to her. And on the same front, she didn't, as far as I know, she didn't give Marsha Blackburn the opportunity to respond to the allegation she's making in this documentary. She did not give President Trump an opportunity uh, to to have a conversation with her in that regard either. She didn't even talk to any everyday Americans who she's portraying, as Lauren said, as these homophobic hillbillies. I think that's really divisive. And if she really wanted to contribute to any sort of political change, she has such an opportunity to be a uniting force to instigate a conversation. And instead, she is ostracizing Americans. And they'll, there's now lots and lots of fans, probably like Virginia and I, who might still listen to her music, might as in, like, we will. I know we will
0: Virginia. <laughs> we
2: will.
1: <laughs> but I'm not going to pay attention to her political views because I know she's not doing her homework and I know she's not willing to engage. If she engaged differently, as I think any real Miss Americana would do, I think that... I would be interested. But I want to end on a note of optimism. Taylor Swift, I've been following her journey since I can remember. And I don't think her journey with politics is over. I think it's just beginning. And I think she has an opportunity to learn and I want to keep an open mind and maybe one day she'll stumble upon a piece I write about her and see that, look, we're not just trying to attack you. We want to welcome you into this conversation. We don't want to be combative. We want to um, be
2: inclusive and and just have a conversation. Well, and our president here at the Heritage Foundation, Kay Coles James, invited Taylor Swift to come in response to, to Taylor's tweet that she's obsessed with politics. Mrs. James said, "Great, we are too. <laughs> Come talk to us about politics. We'd love to have yes, you. Yes, open invitation. Well, and I think as conservatives,
0: we don't have the luxury to pick what artists we listen to based off our political views because we'd be, basically be we listening to country music all the time. Which I don't have a problem Nothing with. Wrong with that. <laughs> but, uh, I do want to wrap this segment with one question for both of you guys, and that is if Taylor Swift came out as a conservative. This this documentary was about her." become you know becoming this trump supporter do you think netflix would have made this documentary
2: no i don't think the documentary would have been made definitely not <laughs> but it would have been a
1: far more interesting documentary because this was so predictable of a storyline it's like your little country girl singer and her kicks off her cowboy boots enters into the big bad world, spends some time in New York City, and then goes home to preach to her hometown girls about right and wrong and forgets about her country roots. I mean, we've seen this so many times before. And that's why at the end of the day, I was incredibly disappointed by this documentary because it was not artistic. It was predictable and a storyline we've heard many
2: times before. All right. Well, we could talk about Taylor Swift all day, (laughs) but let's take a quick break. You know, it is so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. I often find myself very overwhelmed. So if you're looking for a great way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Louie to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. So
0: have you ever heard of a classic millennial sex pickle? (laughs) Can't say I have one. (laughs) Well... Unfortunately, I did for the first time last week, and we have to talk about it. The Daily Wire came out with an article titled, Cis Woman Asks If She Can Date Queer Men Because She's Repelled By Heterosexuality, the story that follows that heavy headlines dives into an anonymous woman's post on the How To Do It slate column. She shares her, again, classical millennial sex pickle, which is the story of her being a heterosexual woman who is against heterosexuality Man, between Swiss Swift and heterosexuality, this is a... Lauren, (laughs) my mind is already
1: going in circles right now trying to digest what actually... ...is going
0: on with this story, but please continue. (laughs) Yes, she is against heterosexuality, both politically and personally, but, woe is her, she is still attracted to men, and she is looking to casually date a gay man, but just doesn't know where to find one. She asked writer Rick Juzwak about venturing into gay dating apps such as Grindr. Juzwak seemed as confused as me about her dilemma, advising her to be respectful towards gay dating apps, saying, quote, Don't try to make something that has been designed to not be about you be about you. His canon response concluded with telling this woman what she probably didn't want to hear, and that is that, quote, there are a lot of not nice men—there's another word—who identify as gay and bi, and their queerness does not automatically absolve them of misogyny. Based on this response, it seems that Wag believes that this woman is more interested in finding a partner with the stereotypical personality of a gay man as opposed to actual concerns about their sexuality. All right. (laughs) You guys had a couple minutes to digest. You guys think?
1: Wait, first off— um, I thought I was a millennial, but I feel like I'm not anymore because she describes this as a classic millennial sex pickle. And I don't what, know what, what is... What is classic about
2: this situation? <laughs> like, oh yeah, my friend had this problem last week. <laughs> oh
0: my oh, goodness.
2: It's This is bizarre. This is very bizarre. It's bizarre. And when you
0: start to think about it, it's sad because this woman... She wants obviously wants a relationship, but for, uh, wait. I
1: feel like we just need to break this down in really simple terms. Okay. So you have a straight woman,
0: yes, who wants to date a gay guy, yeah, because, because misogyny, yeah, because all cis men are just awful, terrible misogynists, or else they okay. wouldn't be a cis man, obviously. Okay,
1: but gay men are yeah. not misogynists, and
0: so she wants to get on an app like Grinder, and for those who don't know, Grinder is like a gay dating app, so she can <laughs> meet gay men. Or 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 bisexual man. That is so not her territory. Yeah, and then that's what the writer is saying is like, hey, we made the space for us, and like, don't. It's not about you. Don't let it be about you. But then they get in trouble
1: because they're supposed to be all inclusive. Yeah, and so how do they suddenly just exclude her because
0: she's a woman? That's
2: why it's a pickle.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I guess the classic, (laughs) the classic guy. Maybe not classic. But it's sad because what is what is her hang up? Like, where does this misogyny come in? Is it something that the media is telling her? Is it her Me Too moment? I mean, there has to be some wall up that is causing her not to want to date a man who wants to date her back.
2: Yeah. And there's obviously some some personal issues that she needs to work through um, and process through in her own life. Like you said, Lauren, you know, we we don't know much about this woman, uh, but if she's still attracted to men. But can't bring herself to date a, a straight man, either. She's just trying to get attention and be as woke as possible, or she really does have some genuine issues that she should probably, you know, seek some seek some wisdom, seek some counseling for.
1: Part of me feels like if if this is the biggest problem this woman has in her life right now, then Americans are doing pretty <laughs> darn great. But on the flip side, it also makes me like fear for the future of our country that we are so bored as human beings that we are now like creating these types of problems for ourselves
0: yeah i mean it's true everybody wants like a gay best friend like that's in every movie romantic comedy ever and i think this woman is just taking that to the next level of wanting she sounds
1: really selfish
0: yeah i mean she and i'm glad that the author called her out for that
1: I want to um, point out I haven't read it yet, but it's on my reading list. Charles Murray has a new book. I'm googling it as we speak, but it it, it it gets into the the biological and scientific differences between men and women. And you know, I actually was just listening to a podcast interview with him, and you know, he was he was asked, "Did you ever think you would be writing a book on this?" Absolutely not. (laughs) I did not think I would ever have to address the fact that there are biological differences between men and women um, actually that begin forming um, in the womb. But I feel like, you know, this that. That work is sadly relevant to these types of conversations today. So it's called Human Diversity, the Biology of Gender, Race, and Class. might be important, if you know anybody having these issues, to slip a copy under their doorstep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This slate column really does dive into some interesting topics. I I want to read—it's a daily article. I want to read just a couple other headlines. One is, My Girlfriend Has Declared We Will No Longer Be Kissing. Another one is, I'm worried my boyfriend won't be attracted to me if I lose weight. <laughs> my boyfriend has drunkenly cheated twice, and now I have chlamydia in my eye. And this one is my favorite. My wife wants to date women. She says I can date two, but only other men. <laughs> do you think these
1: people are real guys, or do you think they make
2: them up for clicks? You know, I probably would have used to think like, oh, they're definitely real. Uh, but after reading Subverted by our, our good yeah, friend Sue, Ellen Sue Ellen Browder. Browder and her telling all the stories of making up, you know, her, her editor telling her she could make up stories at Cosmo. I'm like, yeah. these could be made up.
1: Yeah, very true. I hope they're made up. Actually, yeah. I, I would much prefer this all to be fake <laughs> yeah. We wake up and it's
0: all a dream. Men are
2: men and women are women. Yes. <laughs> That would be nice. Let's get back there. (laughs) All right. Well, we are in a new year, and... That means new emojis every year. Uh, our iPhones get updated with lots of fun new emojis, new characters. Personally, I have really been enjoying the draft emojis. I recently just discovered all of the new animal emojis. I've been using the draft a lot. I feel like the draft is my spirit animal. It's there sometimes. Drafts
1: are my favorite animal really? too. I have a
2: scar on my. On my hand, that looks like a draft that I've had ever since I was
1: born, from what I know.
2: Oh, that's so sweet. I'm with you on that. (laughs) Well, I just feel like their level of, like elegance, and class some of the time with, like, total awkwardness. Awkwardness I like, and I really... fun, yeah. <laughs> I am so with you. There's some really cool new emojis, like a dinosaur or people hugging. But then there's also some pretty woke ones, like men in wedding dresses, a woman in a suit, and various emojis not intended to be either male or female, but gender-neutral. This includes a gender-neutral Santa Claus titled MX Clause. There's also a transgender flag as well as the transgender symbol. The transgender flag was reportedly co-sponsored by Google and Microsoft. They're not available to the public yet, but are estimated to release sometime in March. So, Lauren, what would you even use an emoji of a male in a veil for? A male in a veil. (laughs) Do we have the cricket noise? (laughs) We
0: can add that. I mean, I don't know. If, If for some reason you're talking about a man bride... The limited numbers that anybody is going to be talking about. I mean, I'm under the understanding most same-sex weddings, both men wear suits anyways. Well, you have to be
1: cross-dressing inclusive now. It's not just being, like, LGBT inclusive. It's being inclusive of cross-dressers. Maybe this is the plus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, and it's, like, the guy's wearing a mustache. It's, It's very bizarre. But who, like, actually have either of you ever seen a man wearing a wedding dress except for those really funny videos when it's the first look oh yeah oh. <laughs> and and and, st- and the husband's waiting with his back turned like anticipating his bride tapping his shoulder and then the bride has like one of the guys best guy friends dress up in a cheap wedding dress <laughs> Those are pretty funny. I maybe like... maybe that's what it's for. <laughs>
2: Hopefully. That's definitely what it's for. That's what Google intended yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fine, guys. We're doing fine. <laughs> but, Kelsey, you're a new mom. And, you know, with kids now getting phones at younger and younger ages, what do you think about children having access to all these different kinds of woke emojis?
1: You know, I have to give Lauren credit. For this, because at first, you know, you look at these things, I add the same reaction to the Super Bowl halftime show. Like I just it's what I come to expect at this point. Of course, the halftime show is going to be racy. Of course, there's going to be these new um you know, quote unquote, progressive emojis. And so my first reaction is like, I'm not going to get outraged over it. But you do have to realize that both of you are completely right. There's going to be young girls and young boys who don't know about any of these issues yet, wondering why there is a man in a wedding dress or some of the more problematic ones that you mentioned earlier. So it does make me think like how... Like parenting is so hard. How you know you you? It's this constant balance between like not shielding your child from everything and not being overprotective, but also not being forced to address and explain these complicated concepts at ages when it's absolutely unnecessary. And that's what's I think so frustrating for a lot of conservative or more traditional parents these days. That these big companies are taking the opportunity to initiate these conversations with their children away from them by just putting them in front of um, their faces on, you know, in YouTube ads or um, now emojis and Snapchat. We've talked about it with like Cosmopolitan and all the magazines. Like, how do you ever
0: protect your children from this? I I don't know. (laughs) Well, and it's part of our almost language now, the way that people use emojis and yeah, if I was a parent and I had a 10 11 12 year old with a phone, I would feel like I had to now turn them off. And how do you exactly? How do you explain that to your 10 year old that she can't or he can't use a smiling face or my favorite emoji is the monkey covering his eyes. I feel like we all need to I <laughs> yeah. need to know what everyone's favorite emoji that is. That is so side kind of side note anytime we have to do icebreakers for events that's always my favorite icebreaker is what is your What's favorite because emo- it <laughs> shows so much about breaker. a person yeah, yeah. It but my- yeah, it
1: for the record is like the laughing with the head tilted
2: and crying like laughing so hard <laughs> you're crying i i use the um the palm to the face emoji quite oh, that's <laughs> a good that's a good but yeah but
0: we're robbing young children of like using this and, and yeah and, and it's hard as a parent Wait, to explain why does that mean we have to force them to use words yeah oh gosh
1: gotta take <laughs> <things
2: out. laughs> such a burden uh. all
1: right we'll keep you updated on all emoji related news can we do that in the form of publishing this podcast with all emojis in the headline no words yes i would love that <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: i don't know how our editors would feel about that though <laughs> we'll, we'll try our best all right we're gonna take a quick break but when we're back I interviewed a leader in the pro-life movement, someone who's doing something that I've never heard anyone else do. Stay tuned.
2: What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.
0: Welcome back to the show. It is now that time of the week. The time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week And this week, it is someone who's so passionate about the life issue, she spends her livelihood going out and finding women who need help and need assistance and and gets them that assistance. That woman is Emily Burning, the co-founder and president of Let Them Live, an organization whose mission reads, quote, defending the defenseless against abortion worldwide. Emily, you're on the phone.
3: Yeah, it's great to great to talk to you, Lauren. Yeah, we're so
0: excited. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, my name is Emily, like you said, and I, um, when I was in college, I really started getting passionate about the pro-life issue. And, um, you know, I went to work for the Leadership Institute, and that's where I met my husband, um, who's also very passionate about the life issue. And uh, we both live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is where our nonprofit Let Them Live is based out of. And, uh we are busy with three dogs and running the nonprofit. So, you know, it's a joy to be able to do what I'm passionate about with my husband day to day and, you know, know that we're helping moms and and unborn babies.
0: That is so great. Emily, when did you really realize that you were pro-life?
3: My parents growing up uh, were pro-life. You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I think it was always just implied that you're pro-life. And you know, I was, I always kind of had that base level, like being against abortion, but I didn't really understand, like, what Roe v. Wade was, or I didn't really form my own opinions. So when I was in college, for some reason, so I actually studied biology in college and I was on track to go to vet school. And then for some reason, I just sparked an interest in, you know, the topic of abortion. So I, that's when I really started reading a lot of books and forming my knowledge around the subject. And being a biology major in college, it was, basically a no-brainer to be pro-life because, you know, being pro-life is pro-science. And so really college and then afterwards starting work with Leadership Institute, you know, doing the actual activism on college campuses really cemented, you know, my belief.
0: So I want to actually talk a little bit about your time at LI and the activism that you did. What was your role at LI and how did doing activism in college and on college campuses prepare you to start an organization like Let Them Live?
3: Yeah. So I worked for LI for a semester in the fall of 2017. I was a field representative for the Northeast um, New England region. So I was in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut area. And then I also got moved up to Vermont. Um, So I had a lot of ground to cover. And it was really awesome. It was a really great experience. I love LI. And I learned so much about organizational leadership. You know, Morton taught us so many things about how to go out and be a self-starter and start these groups. So I basically became sort of a pro at getting other people's groups started on college campuses. And I think that really led into my ability to be able to start an organization myself. Um, It also prepared me to handle a lot of the pushback that we get as a pro-life nonprofit. You know, on college campuses, college campuses are extremely hostile to any sort of conservative pro-life viewpoint. And so being on college campuses and helping students deal with that has also prepared me to deal with that sort of, you know, flack on our end as well.
0: There are so many great pro-life nonprofits out there. Why did you specifically want to start Let Them Live?
3: There are definitely a ton of awesome pro-life nonprofits. And I think at first glance, it can seem like the pro-life movement is pretty jam-packed already with nonprofits that fill every part of the pro-life movement, but What we realized in forming Let Them Live was that there is an untapped market for financial aid um, and financial support of women who are on the edge, about to have an abortion, to help bring them back and choose life instead. You know, crisis pregnancy centers are amazing. They do so much work and save so many lives. But a lot of them don't have the funding to pay for, you know, rent for women that come in or car payments for an extended period of time. And so, and, and some of them can't do that at all. So that's where we come in um, because 73% of women who are getting abortions are doing it because of financial reasons. And that's from the Guttmacher Institute. So we thought, gosh, we can target that easily. Money is no problem. Fundraising, you know, LI has got the fundraising down. We've been to international school of fundraising and things like that. So we've learned so much um, and we thought we can absolutely fundraise for these moms something that other organizations haven't uh, tried yet or haven't been able to do yet, um, or that's just not their focus. So uh, we wanted to, to fill that area um, and kind of supplement the, re- the rest of what the pro-life movement is doing.
0: So how do you do fundraising for these moms? Is it Do you go out and do more like direct mail? Do you out and meet with donors? Do you fundraise online? Yeah, so it's a little bit of all that. Um, we will be working
3: on a direct mail program here pretty soon. So my husband is actually like a yeah, she's kind of like a social media guru. And so we've both let them live up from the ground on social media, you know, from zero likes to I think we have combined on our three social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we have probably over 70,000 wow. um, followers. And so because we built that up, we've been able to run a really effective crowdfunding campaign. Um, so typically what a situation will be is, you know, we, we end up contacting or getting contact with a mom who's referred to us possibly by a crisis pregnancy center or a sidewalk counselor. And then if it's an emergency, which it usually is, the, the abortion is usually scheduled for the next day or the next week, we will run an emergency fundraiser for her on social media and crowdfund. And we have an amazing donor base um, that have just been so generous. So we always contact our donors. They're always very happy to help. pro like people are very eager and excited, for the most part, to contribute to something like this because it is directly helping a mom choose life. And then we have a few other larger donors that we go to meet, have meetings with, um, you know, things like that. So it's it's a, it's a few different, you know, areas, but I would say social media has been the biggest money maker for Let Them Live and for these moms.
0: Where does the money that you raise and you give to these women, where does that money typically go?
3: Yeah, so we never give money directly to the moms. So that's something that we always clarify and always make sure everybody, all of our donors, everybody knows that, we raised $25,000. We're not mailing a check to the mom for $25,000. You know, we're taking every step possible to ensure that the donor money is being used wisely. I feel like I am a steward of their money, so I, I like to make sure that that is taken care of. So typically, with a mom, we will pay her landlord directly if that's the problem. Or, gosh, just the other day, I paid a Verizon bill. I'll pay gas bills and utility bills, you know, things like that. So we're always paying money directly to where it's due.
0: So you mentioned that you work with crisis pregnancy centers and mm-hmm. um, different folks to find these women. But once you find these women, what is your relationship with them like?
3: We actually are transitioning right now, which is, is great. We are bringing on a couple of crisis pregnancy counselors or um, people to sort of connect with the pregnancy centers and manage the cases, manage, you know, the caseload of the moms. For the longest time, I've been the one and my husband's been the one, you know, talking to the women. So we will just get to know them. Get to know their situation a little bit, figure out their financial situation, and it is very a deep personal relationship because we are asking questions that you know other nonprofits probably won't be asking these moms. And so we we basically just want to get to know them as a person. We try not to make it very businessy because you know these moms are just on the edge. And essentially, the pro life movement does have to sort of refocus on these moms because ultimately they're the ones walking into that abortion clinic. And they're the ones ultimately deciding to do that. So we want to reach them where they're at. So we will counsel them for as long as they need, you know, talk to them, be available to them. And then, you know, once they... Say, okay, I, can, I think I can accept your help. We have a contract and a, an agreement for them to sign, and then we can proceed with helping them. And we have to have a verified ultrasound and things like that from our crisis pregnancy center. So we do a lot of that back-end stuff as well. But we do go visit them sometimes as well. We just got back from Atlanta a few weeks ago visiting one of the moms that we're helping. She was just really struggling. Her parents don't support her. The father of her child left and said, here's money for an abortion. So She was really struggling. So we decided to fly down to see her. And that that really helped, uh, you know, nurture that relationship between us.
0: How relieved are these women once they find out that this financial burden is taken off of them?
3: Oh, my gosh. It's like night and day, really. We have so many stories and comments and testimonies from these moms saying, I mean, it, we actually just created a banner for CPAC because we'll be tabling at CPAC. A little shameless plug there. But um, we uh, have a banner of all these statements from the Let Them Live Moms, and a lot of them are just so clear as day. If you hadn't really, like helped me and relieved me of this financial burden, I would have made the worst decision of my life in having an abortion. And so it's just it's just palpable. You know, these moms, even if we're just texting, it's just so obvious that money was just clouding their view and, and the burden of their bills was really just hanging over them. And I'm, you know, like anybody else, we all understand financial burden. We all understand having bills that have to be paid and maybe understanding that you may not have enough money in the bank uh, to pay for those bills. And so any sort of financial help is such a relief and can really, really change a person's mind. And these women don't want to have abortions. They don't want to go in there and do that, but they feel like they have no other option and so when we come in and step in and help them take over their bills, they feel like they are just being with clear vision.
0: Why do you think the financial burden drives so many women to having abortions?
3: I think a more broader look at this is this human nature. You know, a lot of people are motivated by money. Um, We see that in our culture today. It's sort of ingrained in our culture, in American culture today. You know, having money means you have value. And if you don't have money, you know, you're going to have to do other things in order to make it work. And so I think that money is just a huge motivator for things. And so lack of money is also the same way. So, you know, not having enough money makes you not really think correctly and makes you make drastic decisions, even though most people would be okay without having an abortion and not having money. And so, yeah, I just think money is such a weird influence on human beings in general. And that's why we try to step in and take that burden away because at the end of the day, money is just money. And if it's $2,500 or $15,000 that will help a woman's mind and help her to back out of that abortion, then we're totally going to do it for her.
0: Yeah. What a small value compared to a human life.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people put so much value on money in our society, but we don't step back to think, well, gosh, what is this human life worth, though? You know, if if a mom said, I am $100,000 in debt and I don't think I can do this, we would find a way to get rid of that or at least help that burden. You know, take that burden off of her. We would do it for sure.
0: That's amazing. How does adoption play into what you guys do?
3: Adoption is very interesting and awesome. So we're huge, obviously huge advocates of adoption. My sister-in-law was adopted from China 13 years ago. So we're, we're definitely huge advocates of adoption. And we get reached out to all the time by adoptive couples, people ready to adopt, saying, you know, if any of these moms decide that they want to put their baby up for adoption, you know, we will do it. We'll take care of all their expenses, things like that. The sad part about that, you know, the wonderful part is that there are so many people ready and willing to take on another person's child. But the sad part is that a lot of women, something very common that I hear is that, you know, I'll ask a mom, have you considered adoption? And she'll say something along the lines of, I couldn't, do that, it would be too painful to put my child up for adoption. I will either keep it or kill it, basically. Keep it or have an abortion. And some moms do consider it and then they don't end up doing it. They'll end up parenting. But yeah, sadly what I hear from the moms that they don't want to do an adoption and that they'll either, like I said, have an abortion or keep it. And this is a definitely a conversation that needs to be had and I do my very best to, to put that out there in a social media sphere and out to pro-life people, because I think a lot of people think it's a very easy decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the outside looking in, sure, but, you know, the adoption process is very grueling and very difficult. And, you know, for the moms, it's a very difficult decision, too. So we get a lot of pro-life people that will comment on our posts saying, you know, just put it up for adoption, just put it up for adoption. But a lot of moms don't want to make that decision. So um, if it comes down to it and she says, I would rather have an abortion than do an adoption, we're going to do everything we can to ensure that she doesn't have that abortion and that that will involve taking on her financial burden. So I think the the pro-life movement does need to shift a little bit you know. see that sentiment um, that the moms are having.
0: So one interesting component of Let Them Live is that you guys work with the pro-choice community, correct?
3: Yeah, yeah. We um, honestly, in our minds, the more the more moms and babies we can help, the better. And there is, is don't know how big, but a, a portion of the pro-choice community that does think to support us and people that have donated to us before that identify as pro-choice. So we're pretty proud to be a pro-life organization that sort of bridges the gap.
0: So how do you think that the media and all the coverage that it gives to movements like Shout Your Abortion, how does that affect the young women that you guys are counseling and helping?
3: So I think that the culture, especially with the Shout Your Abortion, you know, movement and book, the culture is just sort of like a, if you don't know what to do in a situation in a crisis pregnancy, it seems like the default is to just go have an abortion. And it seems that the sentiment is, well, you can just go have an abortion. It's a quick fix to your problem. No problem at all. It'll just be, you know, in and, in and out in a couple of hours and you'll, you're done. You never have to think about it again. And that's the sentiment that the Shout Your Abortion campaign presented by picking and choosing only women who are sort of masking a lot of the underlying feelings that come after abortion. So women that are in these crisis pregnancies are only hearing that abortion was amazing and abortion was the best thing they ever did and, you know, things like that. So they're getting a very one-sided perspective. And it's actually awesome that you brought up Shout Your Abortion because after I read that book. I was really angry because I know so many women who are post-abortive that do not feel like they want to shout it from the rooftop. And so I wrote a book called Shout Your Abortion 2, T-O-O, which is essentially um, based off of Shout Your Abortion. And it's a platform for women and men who have had abortion experiences that regret it to share their story because they were left out of the conversation completely because they don't have an abortion story that fits the narrative of the abortion lobby. And so uh, Shot Your Abortion 2 gave a voice and gives a voice to those, those women and, and men as well that, you know, obviously were hurt by their abortion experiences. So we've been circulating that around pregnancy centers, sending that directly to the moms to give them a more balanced view of the actual abortion debate. And that book has actually helped four moms cancel their abortions just by reading the book alone. So I think it's important that there's a more balanced perspective of how it can actually affect these moms.
0: Wow, that sounds incredible. If any of our listeners want to read the book or or buy the book for someone else, can you let us know where they can purchase that?
3: Yeah, so we are going to be putting it on Amazon pretty soon. But it is on our website, letthemlive.org. And, you know, it's up there. We just ordered another round and they're $30. The, the proceeds, it's all donations to Let Them Live to the moms in crisis pregnancies. So it's going towards a good cause and you can, you know, be able to participate in the stories that, that are in there. So,
0: well, speaking of stories, before we wrap, I wanted to ask you do you have one story that really shows the impact that your organization has?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Let me pull it up really quick. Um, it's on one of our banners, and I just some of these. I just talked about kind of the statements that we had from the moms, um, and I think that some of these are very impactful. Maybe I can read you some of their quote because there's so many women that we've worked with that have become basically just a part of our family. One mom, her name is Miriam, and she was actually given money by the National Abortion Federation to go have an abortion. And so that's another reason why we do what we do, because there are organizations out there that are giving women money to have abortions. So if there's organizations giving women money to have abortions, there need to be organizations giving money to women to choose life.
0: Absolutely. Um,
3: so Miriam said, she you know, texted me just, gosh, a couple months ago and said, I wouldn't be this far in my pregnancy if it wasn't for you. You have done a lot more than others have my whole life, and it's nice to not feel so alone for once. And that hit me because a lot of these moms, they don't have family around, and if they do, they're typically being pressured into abortion. They don't really have any support, and that breaks my heart because these are just human beings trying to make it in life. And so it made me feel really good that we are there for, for Miriam. Uh, Atoria is another really great great story and great save for you lived in California. And when she got in contact with us, she was about 19 weeks pregnant. And in California, it's really scary when we have moms in California because abortion is paid for. They can have abortion basically up until birth. It's pretty much just free for all in California. So she was very back and forth. She canceled her abortion a few times and then rescheduled And one day she called us and she said, I'm sorry, I have to just have this abortion. So we just knew she was so alone. So my husband and I hopped on a red eye immediately to fly to San Francisco. And we went to her and we told her we were there for her. And we just showed her we were there for her. And she just started crying to me. And she said, Emily, I was about to have a two-day abortion. And then after my abortion, I was going to go to this one parking garage and jump off the parking garage and commit suicide. And I thought, oh my God, if we hadn't been there, you know, not only would her baby have been aborted, but she would have jumped off a parking garage. Wow. And in that that moment, it hit me like, there's a reason we do this work, you know, and this is is the dirty work that nobody wants to do. Everybody wants to do a lot of the froofy activism. And yes, it's great to talk about how abortion is so bad and all these things, but at the end of the day we have to get down and dirty. We have to get our hands dirty. We have to get into these situations with these moms to save their lives and to save their babies lives and it is not work that is fun. You know, it's heartbreaking, but it's also rewarding because Atoria's baby is going to be due March 1st and Miriam's baby is due March 7th. So we're going to be flying all over the place from coast to coast, meeting these babies, seeing these moms just enjoying life and That's what I'm most looking forward to because we've been through so much with these moms. You know, they're our family and we're just, yeah, it's just just the best work. It really is.
0: Wow, that is incredible. I just want to pivot one last question. We ask every guest on our show this question, and that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hate that word, though, because I am not a feminist in the sense that how, how the left has taken that over. I hate what they've turned it into. I'm like a Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul feminist, the real feminist that fought for real rights for women, the right to vote, and they were pro-life. And they recognize the dignity of the pre-born child, and they recognize the dignity of the woman and how abortion destroys that dignity. And so, yeah, if I, if I say I'm a feminist, I'm, I'm one of those feminists and not one of the, the women's marchers wearing the hat.
0: <laughs> awesome i love that i love that everybody has such a great answer it's always different but it's always so great
3: yeah 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 we have to take that word back you know um pro-life is pro-woman there was a a great graphic i saw our uh, designer our graphic designer for let them live she did something it says if you're if your feminism is pro-abortion it's not feminism and that's the angle that the pro-life movement has to take
0: yeah no, that that is great. If our listeners are interested in learning more about your organization, where can they go?
3: Social media is the best place, Facebook, let them live, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Um, our Instagram is pretty popping right now so um, and also our website let org.
0: That's great. Emily, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Lauren.
0: All right, that is going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women.
1: Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and
0: share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It makes such a difference. Have
2: a wonderful week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.